Take your copy of the scriptures or the Pew Bible in front of you. And this morning, Lord willing, we will finish up the first chapter of Paul's letter to Timothy. First Timothy chapter one, first Timothy chapter one. Uh, and we will read verses 18 through 20. And we are looking at the second message in this section dealing with fight the good fight. Or if you remember the language in the NKJV, wage the good warfare. And we will we want to look especially this morning at the danger of apostasy, the danger of apostasy. First Timothy chapter one, verse 18, this charge, this charge I commit to you, son Timothy, according to the prophecies previously made concerning you, that by them you may wage the good warfare, having faith and a good conscience, which some, notice the language here, which some have rejected concerning the faith have suffered shipwreck of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Let us pray. Our God and Father, we ask that your spirit, the spirit of truth, would lead us into the way of truth, all truth. We ask that you would make plain to us what we do not understand. We ask that you would bless the instruction of your word, our hearing of it. And we ask this, Father, by your grace and for your glory. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Cutting right to the chase, last week we looked at the charge, especially in verse 18 of our passage, the charge, and that was to wage the good warfare. That's where we were at last week. If you remember in that charge, in that, that first verse of this section, verse 18, we have a, a direct address, a, a charge given to Timothy. And if you remember this, the word for charge there in verse 18, it is a military command. That is, there was a strong sense of, uh, from Paul to Timothy, he was to have a strong sense of obligation to obey the instruction of the apostle here. And if you remember, we spoke about that charge, how Paul or how Timothy would be responsible to his father in the faith, the apostle, the apostle of Christ. But ultimately, like each and every one of us and all ministers of the gospel, all elders in the church, we ultimately will give an account to God himself. Paul's word, if you remember, is a charge. And you remember how this runs through the pastoral epistles. It is a charge, a command to faithfulness, a charge to guard the flock, a charge to defend the truth, a charge to confront false teachers, a charge, as we've seen, to wage the good warfare, to fight the good fight. And we were reminded and we are continue to be reminded this morning that there are real enemies, real enemies within and without that are attacking the churches. Amen. Now, that was the charge. Wage the good warfare. And this morning we come to point number two. The conduct. The conduct. Beginning in verse 19. And it is having faith and a good conscience. Having faith and a good conscience. This is the conduct. And Timothy is to listen to the apostolic charge. And here Paul reminds him of two, listen, two vital truths. If he is to persevere in the fight. If he's to persevere in the fight, and if you and I are to persevere in this fight, and if every good minister, if the elders in the church are to persevere in this fight as we wage this warfare, there are two vital truths that are found here. Notice verse 19. Verse 19. Having faith and a good conscience. Having faith and a good conscience. Here, 
we have two vital truths that are to be understood, to be embraced, and cultivated in our lives as God's people, but especially the leadership of the church. They're important, we might say, since this is fighting the good fight, we might say these are, these are two very important weapons for the fight ahead. These are fundamental for, the, for personal, listen, for personal perseverance and for the corporate preserving of the church. They concern the faith. The faith. That is the faith which is to be believed. The content of faith. Remember we've spoken about this. Paul will often speak of faith. That is the believing, the act of the will of believing, receiving, trusting and then he'll speak of the faith in the sense of the content of truth. Like we, we think of the Apostles' Creed or our confession of faith. For Paul, he, he ultimately means by the faith that is the apostolic doctrine, the Word of God, the Scriptures. In other words, the Bible. Amen. So having faith... And a good conscience. They concern the faith that which is to be believed, its content, and, listen, and the new life that is to be produced, the practice, the fruit of saving faith. Why we are not, let me be clear, why we are not justified by works but by faith alone, in Christ alone, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 through 10. However, as verse 10 of Ephesians 2 reminds us, and as James will remind us, genuine faith is not dead, but it is to be a living, a vibrant, a lively faith, is the language of our confession, a lively faith. So having faith, here's the first of these two vital truths that Timothy's to understand if he's to persevere in the fight. If we are to persevere in the fight or, or, or corporately for the life of this church, for the preserving of this church, these are vital. The first one, having faith, he says in verse 19. Having faith. Now, again, this having faith is not restricted to just believing or only the content of faith. And what I mean by that, you say, well, is it the content of faith or is it the act of believing? But what if it's not restricted to either one of those? But what if it's both? What I mean by this is you remember in the past we've spoken about uh, faith, the elements, the elements of saving faith. When the church throughout the ages have spoken about the elements of saving faith, use these three aspects when they spoke of saving faith. One, they would say that when there is saving faith, when it is found that there is a content to that faith. Uh, content that is that which is to be believed to be believed uh, the truth the, the promises of God uh, they use that Latin term term notitia that is the content of faith that is true faith it's, it's not just this leap of faith as, as as someone might say into nothing or just wishing no it is faith in content in something. And it's the content of faith. That is the Bible, the scriptures, the gospel, apostolic doctrine. So faith focuses its eye, its understanding upon the content of faith and the promises, the truth of God. Secondly, there is to be an assent an assent to that truth. That is a mental agreement and agreeing with it that it is true, that the content of biblical truth is true and 
and it is agreed upon that one should believe it. They call that a sensus, to assent to it. And the third one, the third one, there is to be that content of truth. There is to be this uh, assenting that it is true and that it should be believed upon. The third aspect is what they would call fiduciary. The trusting, the trusting. There is the trusting, the believing, the resting in the truth. In one sense, we would think of the illustration of a chair. We see there's a chair. That's the content. I sit that if I sit in the chair, it will hold me up. But saving faith in that third sense, that fiduciary, that trusting is when I do what? When I sit in the chair. It's not enough to acknowledge that, oh, there is some content there. It's not even enough to acknowledge that it should be believed. I must throw myself upon that content. I must sit in it, rest in it, believe in it, trust in it. And that's what we do with biblical truth. And so what we have here is this having faith. Timothy and all Christians are to have faith, that is to believe and to embrace the truth. So there is a there is genuine saving faith. However, it is a faith that embraces the content of the truth. It is the truth of the scriptures. It is the apostolic faith. As Jude would write, he exhorts God's people, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints, Jude 3. And this is the truth. This is the faith. This is the apostolic faith that has, in verse 19, notice which some have rejected. You notice his language? Verse 19, that faith some have rejected. So the false teachers have rejected the faith. The false teachers have rejected the content of apostolic doctrine. And this is what we, again, would understand as the Bible and the teaching of the Bible that is to be known, to be understood, assented that it should be believed and that we should believe it, trust in it, rest in it, right? Receive it. But that's not all he says here. He says not only having the faith, that's our first weapon. We believe, we trust in the content of apostolic doctrine. Yes, Paul. That is what we are to do as individuals, and that is what we are to do corporately as a church if we are to persevere in this war. But secondly, look at verse 19 again. He says, and a good conscience. Now, Paul, Paul weds these together throughout the New Testament that is having faith and a good conscience. And we are seeing here, what, what, what we are seeing here is the inseparable aspect of truth, of truth and saving faith. It's a grace of God, again, that's grounded in the truth of God. And this good conscience is the idea that True, saving faith, grounded in the truth, resting and trusting in the truth, that saving faith, when it is a genuine faith, it bears fruit. It bears and springs forth with good works to the glory of God. Now, you say, what does this mean then? Okay, having faith and a good conscience. So having faith, resting, believing in the content of truth and a good conscience, that is that we have a good conscience because we're living in accordance with the truth. We're embracing the truth and we live accordingly. And therefore, we have a good conscience. As we've said before, wrong theology, bad doctrine leads to wrong living or bad living. Did you know that false doctrine leads to moral failing? Did you know that? 
You know what Calvin said about this statement that we see by Paul in many cases? Calvin said concerning verse 19, a bad conscience, listen to this. He said, quote, a bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. Now, when someone like Calvin says that, that ought to perk our ears up, shouldn't it, Tracy? Yeah. A bad conscience is the mother of all heresies. Now, what do we mean by this? And how does this relate to, in this case, these two men that have departed and that have rejected the faith? Think of it this way. <clears throat> um, when a car, well, at least when a, a car with a combustion engine, when a car has a sound that something is wrong, you've had that car and you know what it sounds like, right, guys? And when it doesn't sound right, you know something's not right. When something doesn't sound right, you go, oh, whoa. Your first response is not to look over in the passenger seat and say, what's wrong with the car? You just look at the seat. You don't open the glove box. You don't look in the glove box. You don't go look in the trunk. But you look underneath the hood. You try to hear where the sound's coming from. Sometimes it's difficult. You try to find, it's over there somewhere. I can hear it. So at least, if you're not going to repair it yourself, when you go to the mechanic, you can give some kind of intelligent you know, answer. It's over here. There's, you hear it? It's right in here somewhere. But you know that when you hear something wrong, you know there's trouble underneath the hood. Right? There's trouble underneath the hood when you start to hear things that aren't right. Are you hearing what I'm saying? Right? Max Lucado. You remember him? Uh, Well-known, popular evangelical, wrote all kinds of books for years and years. I never did read any of his books. Maybe some of you read some of his stuff. But Max Licato, he recently, recently, he, uh, he apologized. He, he spoke at the National Cathedral. That was bad news to begin with. Unless he went there to lock and loaded, ready to to really preach. But that, that national cathedral belongs to a communion that is apostate. It's called the American Episcopal Church. If you're part of an American, part of the American Episcopal Church, the mainline Episcopal Church, leave. It's apostate. Leave that communion. If you're part of the Presbyterian Church USA, I didn't say PCA, not the Presbyterian Church of America, though they're fighting, they're struggling, but the PCUSA, leave. It's an apostate communion. If you're part of the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America, leave. It's an apostate communion. That's uh, an apostate communion. But he was there speaking at the National Communion at Cathedral. And this is a man who in the past apparently held to the position, a biblical position, that homosexuality was a sin. But after the outrage, after him making comments about homosexuality at the National Cathedral, he apologized for his position. All right. So when we hear something's wrong... There's some trouble underneath the hood, isn't there? Right? Now, now when I say this, this is a this sword cuts both ways. Listen to me. False doctrine, wrong theology can lead to a wrong way of life. Right? Moral failings. 
But it cuts the other way, too. You can have someone who for a season in their life, they are subscribing to, they are confessing to sound doctrine. But because of a moral failure, hidden sins, they begin to deny the faith. You see, it goes both ways. What I mean by this is when I hear, for example, like Max Lucado's statements on homosexuality and him backing up on them. Now, when I hear this, it tells me that something, again, is wrong under the hood. When a man who once taught that, the, that homosexuality was sin and now backs up on it, something is wrong. And immediately my mind goes, one, one, he has fallen into some kind of sexual sin, and now he's attempting to justify it in his own mind. You, did you know people do that? That's what we do. Two, maybe it's not that. Maybe, maybe, number two, he's fallen into the love of money. He's fallen into that root of evil. Right? And the love of money. And he's worried that by that criticism, he's not going to sell as many books as he used to. Maybe that's the sin. Or three, he's fallen into a form of idolatry and desiring the praise of men and from our fallen culture, which now embraces this. I may be wrong in all three of these. That's probably in the ballpark. Right? You see, when we don't have saving faith and a good conscience, we're not living according to the content of faith and the truth of the faith that is found in the scriptures. We either fall into sin or we will embrace that for a season. We fall into sin and then to justify our sin, we begin to reject the truth. Right? To have a good conscience means that you are living in accordance with the truth that you are teaching, that your faith and practice are consistent. Now let me give you let me give you an example of this. Later Paul We'll pick this up again, but notice how he words it later to Timothy in chapter 4. The same book in chapter 4. Listen to chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, what he says. 1 Timothy chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. 1 Timothy 4, verse 12. Paul says to Timothy, let no one despise your youth, but be, notice this, but be an example to believers in word, in conduct, in love, in spirit, in faith, in purity. In other words, he's immediately saying that Timothy, which you have received, that which you have embraced, that which you claim to be a, a Christian, a minister of the gospel, be an example to the people of God. Be an example to the believers in word, conduct, in spirit, in faith, in purity. And then verse 13, verse 13, till I come, till I come, give attention to reading, to exhortation, to doctrine. And verse 14, you know how you do verse, verse 13? You know how you do verse 13? That's what we're doing right now. That's what we're doing right now. But verse 14, do not neglect the gift that's in you, which was given to you by prophecy with the laying out of hands of the eldership. We saw that already in verse 18. Verse 15, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to them. And then notice what he says, that your progress may be evident to all. Now verse 16, he hits it out of the park. He's, he's weaving it all through here. Let the truth settle in your soul. 
that which you've embraced by faith. Let the people of God be an example to believers. Let them see your progress. Let it be evident to all. Verse 16 now. Timothy, take heed to yourself and to what? And to the doctrine. Take heed to yourself, your way of life and to your doctrine, that you may have faith and a good conscience, right? Continue in them. And you want to see this idea of this corporate perseverance? Continue in them, for in doing this, you will save both yourself and those who hear you. I mean, verse 16 is at the heart of what it means to be, if we use the world's term, a successful and faithful minister. Take heed to yourself and to the doctrine, continue in them, for in doing this you will save both yourself and those who hear you. And so these are those two fundamental, vital weapons of the good warfare. And what are they? He tells us there, verse 19, having faith... And a good conscience. Now, there's the conduct. There are the weapons, those vital fundamental truths that are to be embraced by God's people that are to be modeled by church leadership. Thirdly, though, and I couldn't come up with the C. I had a charge, I had a conduct, but my, my third point is the danger. So that's a D. The danger. And the danger is suffering shipwreck. Look at the second part of verse 19. Beginning of verse 19. Which some, having rejected concerning the faith, have shipwrecked, suffered shipwreck. Verse 20 of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, whom I delivered to Satan, that they may learn not to blaspheme. Oh, here's part of the minister's war, battling false teaching and teachers. And he even moves us here into not only warning of that danger, battling the false teachers, but he even here we remind us of formal church discipline. In verse 19, what we have is the beginning of what is known biblically and in Christian and Christianity as apostasy. Apostasy. It, you, you may not have heard of that much. Apostasy. The, the prefix, apo. Why are the young men taking Greek? There's some young men taking Greek. Apo, someone tell me. From, away from, from, right? Yeah. Apostasy. Moving away from a position. Moving away from a belief. In military terms, you're abandoning your post. Your position, right? My father tells a story that when he uh, was shipped to Korea during the Korean War, uh, he was on this uh, this Navy ship that was carrying troops, and um, you had to stand guard even on the ship. And so he's outside standing guard and a storm comes up and he said, waves are coming over the boat. He's hanging onto a pole as waves are coming up. And finally, at some point after being out there for hours and as, as, at night, as waves are coming up in the storm over the boat, he goes downstairs and they look at him. And they said, oh, we called all the guys down here. We forgot about you. <laughs> but he was fearful to abandon his post. And if you're in the military, especially if it was 50 years ago, you know what that meant. It was a price to pay. But an apostate abandons his post. He, he, he deviates from the truth. And, and biblical apostasy, it's the abandonment of Christ. It is to defect from Christ. 
It is to depart from the Christian faith, to forsake the Christian faith. The Puritans, especially John Owen, would speak of this great apostasy or apostasy as a departure from one Christian doctrine, two from the life or ethics of morality, and three, biblical worship. Worship. So you can depart, you can apostate from the truth, biblical truth, the doctrine. You can apostate, you can forsake the faith in the sense that you don't have a good conscience, that is now you have fallen into immorality, or worship. This word apostasy is found in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 verse 3, let, let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away, the falling away, there's the word, the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. Now, now the elders... The elders at Ephesus had already been warned of the great danger of this. Uh, there was language, strong language that was used for the false teachers who would come in and rise up among them. If you remember, Paul spoke to them when he was there for three years teaching the word of God. And, and with his departure from them, he tells them in Acts chapter 20. You remember? In Acts 20, beginning in verse 28. Acts 20, verse 28. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Verse 29, for I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And we've seen family language so far in 1 Timothy. We've seen military language. But here we're reminded of this shepherding language from Acts, that the good minister, the eldership of the church, are to function as shepherds and guarding the flock. And he speaks of the false teachers as savage wolves desiring to, desiring to attack the flock, not sparing the flock. Verse 30, he says... Also from among yourselves, from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things. And listen to the word here, to draw away, to draw away disciples after themselves. Therefore, he says in verse 31, therefore watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. In this case here, we have, he says, which some, verse 19 in our text in 1 Timothy 1, some have, some having rejected, they rejected, they have now forsaken, he says, concerning the faith. Again, definite article. So they have rejected apostolic doctrine. They've, they've rejected biblical doctrine, the truth of scripture. And Paul says, having suffered shipwreck, he, he, he gives this picture that, that uh, their rejection of the faith, their apostasy from the faith is comparable to a ship dashing against the rocks. It's destruction and death. The things that, would, that should be a rudder, that is faith and a good conscience. No one was at the helm. The helmsman had forsaken them and turned them into the rocks. And so they suffered shipwreck. Verse 20. Of whom are Hymenius and Alexander? He names at least two. These appear to possibly be men that were teachers or elders in the life of the church there. We know something about Hymenius. He's, he's mentioned again in 2 Timothy. In 2 Timothy, in Paul's second letter to Timothy, in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. Notice this. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 16. 
but shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness. Verse 17, and their message will spread like cancer, like an infection, like a disease. So the false teachers, their teaching is deadly. And when it comes into the life of the church, into the life of the believer, it spreads. It can spread throughout the church like a cancer, something that's deadly. And then he says, Hymenius, verse 17, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 17. Hymenius, there's his name again. And Philetus are of this sort. Hey, he names a third guy. Now, some speculate whether Alexander is the silversmith who gave Paul a hard time, but that was such a common name in the, in the ancient world, it's hard to know. But in any case, he names, they would have known, the Ephesians would have known, who are Hymenaeus and Alexander. And now we see in the second letter to Timothy, also Philetus, he says, they are of this sort. Now, look at verse 18. 2 Timothy 2, verse 18. Who having strayed, they, they left their post, they departed from the truth. They have strayed concerning the truth. And notice what they say. Saying that the resurrection is already past. And they have overthrown, they, and they overthrow the faith of some. And so their false teaching, in which one aspect of it was they believed the resurrection had already come to pass, was beginning to spread. It had already overthrown the faith of some, and it was spreading like a disease. Paul, again, will use this idea of apostasy in 2 Timothy 4. Not 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy 1 Timothy 4, you may remember this. 1 Timothy 4, verse 1. Now the Spirit says that in, expressly says that in later times some will what? Depart from the faith. They would depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits, doctrines of demons. Verse 2, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. So we're reminded here that the dangers can be without false teachers out there. It can be the world and its system attacking, putting pressure on the people of God, on the church. Or it can be within. The false teachers may have entered into the church or it may have been men that no longer have a good conscience, men that have now fallen into immorality, now are rejecting the faith or they have rejected the faith and no longer have a good conscience. And now they're, they're, they can even be teaching within the context of the visible church. We see this all around us. And it's nothing new. We're finding it here. He's reminding elders in the church to wage this good warfare. This has been the way from the beginning. And so when we look around us, when we see apostate uh, communions, denominations, churches, teachers of all sorts, we're reminded that this is what we see in this age of the last days, from, from the coming of Christ, the death of Christ and his resurrection, unto all the way until his second advent. And so we should be girded up with truth. We should be equipped and be prepared for these things. And so we see the danger for teachers here and for false teachers the danger we see uh, in this passage concerning these two men. We should remind ourselves here. Listen closely. The elders of this church, we not only give an account on a week-by-week -week basis, but yearly we give a, a signed document saying uh, that we will teach within the parameters of our confession. But the elders are to be the primary teachers of the church. And at the same time, we, we're laboring to raise up the next generation. And it's not easy. It's hard at times. We're trying to raise up the next generation after us. Equip those men. Prepare those men. Give them opportunity. Assess their gifts and their life. Amen. 
But again, let's be careful. Listen, we're not into allowing as many people teach as that, that desire to teach. Desiring to teach of itself is no sign of an elder. It's, it can be a sign, but not in of itself. And we're not into, let's allow everybody that can teach. No, this isn't evangelicalism. We're a Reformed church. My brethren, James tells us, let not many of you become teachers knowing that we shall receive a stricter judgment. So young men, or men of any age, you desire to teach, you desire to be uh, an elder in the church someday. Consider that very carefully, very carefully. Now, let me say a few things about apostasy. This departing from the faith. Jesus, we, we, it's scattered throughout the New Testament. We find it in the parables. Notice, for instance, in Matthew chapter 13, one place, the parable of the sower. Listen to these words. In Matthew 13, verse 18, Therefore hear the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, then the wicked one comes and snatches away what was sown in his heart. This is he who received seed by the wayside. But he who received the seed on stony places, this is he who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but only endures for a little while. For when tribulation or persecution arise because of the word, he immediately stumbles. Verse 22, now he who received the word among the thorns is he who hears the word and, and the cares of the world and deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becomes unfruitful. But he who receives the seed on the good ground is he who hears the word and understands it and who indeed bears fruit and produces some a hundred, some sixty, some thirty. We're reminded in, in parables such as that, that the church body, that the eldership cannot see the hearts of people and that there will be people with great excitement and zeal that make a profession of faith in Christ that will enter into the life of the church and they'll be here for a season and then two, three Four or five years later, we go, what happened to so-and-so? What happened to them? And or you may find out that they walked with us for a long season or a short season. And then they fell into sin. And then they didn't want anything to do with the Christian faith. They rejected it. Now, do you have cases such as that? You find the warnings there's five main warnings throughout the book of Hebrews. We don't have time to cover all those, but there's those warnings. We should take them serious because our own hearts can deceive us. The elders cannot read your heart. And so we, we were looking for a credible profession, evidences of graces of faith in an individual. And we want to prod you week after week. This is the language of Hebrews 10. Prod, encourage you into continuing in the faith as God's people. But John tells us, and we, as we've sung this morning, if you are truly the elect of God, which we don't know, because we cannot see, there's not a big, as Spurgeon would say, a big yellow E on your back. We know that when we see those that are departing from the faith, we know that they were never true members of the new covenant. Christ was never truly their priest. They were never under the blood of the Son. Amen. They never were indwelt by the Holy Spirit. As John tells us in 1 John 2.19, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out that it might be made manifest that none of them were of us. And so God will winnow. God will weed the life of the church. Often those who are true and faithful, those who are wheat and those are tares, those who are goats and those are sheep. And we should realize there may very well be tares and goats that would outwardly walk with us into the end. And then the Lord Jesus on that day will weed them out.
but often it is evident and seen in this life. We're running out of time, so let me let me just close with this also, the, the, the closing language here of church, formal church discipline. Notice verse 20, of whom are Hymenius and Alexander, and then Paul uses this strong word here, of whom, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. What we see here is discipline. The same language Paul uses over in 1 Corinthians 5. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 4, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 5, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. Here's the language of formal church discipline. Now, he's an apostle. He's exercised the keys of the kingdom. He's, he's casting someone out of the life of the church, the communion of the church, the safety of the church, out into the world, into the realm of the devil. And we see that now, Matthew 18 and other passages, like when Paul says, when you are gathered together, that is now that which the apostles have established, the churches under the headship of Christ, they carry that out under the leadership of the elders. They carry out former church discipline. But one that denies the faith, whether with the, the faith itself, a biblical, Christian, apostolic faith, orthodox faith, or whether they reject the truth by a life of sin, rebellion to God, as in the case in 1 Corinthians 5, that formal church discipline is to take place. They're removed from the life of the church. They're removed from the table. It's not just shunning, though a type of rejecting that brother or sister takes place. They're removed from the life of the church, the covenant community that is visibly among us. It's a serious thing. It's one of the marks of a true church. It's one of the marks of a true church that is not only the faithful preaching of the word of God, the faithful administration of the sacraments, but also discipline. Now, and so we see discipline. And then notice the goal of discipline, whether it's in 1 Corinthians 5, where he says that his spirit may be saved, but even in the case of Alexander and Hymenius, notice the language that he uses here. I, whom I delivered to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. So their false doctrine, their way of life was blaspheme, blasphemy, but there seems to be the long goal here of restoration. Though discipline has taken place, it is with the goal of restoring them, bringing them to repentance and faith. Now, in closing, in the way of application, one, we have a reminder to all pastors, to all the elders of the church, to be faithful to that great responsibility that's been given to us. Holding to, teaching the true faith, warning, rebuking, correcting, and disciplining when needful. Number two, listen church body, we just scratched the surface when it comes to the texts that deal with apostasy. But the Bible provides such examples, such warnings of apostasy to warn believers. These passages are to provide and to be a means to exhort you to persevere, to continue in the faith, to battle unbelief, to fight sin as God's people. Amen? Three. Your apostasy reminds us, as I've already said, that there may be those who walk among us who actually have a superficial or temporary faith rather than a genuine saving faith. And such individuals may appear to be Christians sometimes only for a season. It will be proven on that last day that they are false if it's not found out beforehand. As Jesus said, 
Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, done many wonders in your name? And then I would declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. They have a profession of faith, but they do not possess saving faith. And it's a deadly and scary place to be, to be self-deceived, to believe that you have saving faith, but faith and a good conscience don't match up. Life and a living faith and works are not matching up. Someone says they have saving faith and yet they embrace heretical doctrine. That's not a Christian. Someone says they have saving faith and yet they live like the wicked. That's not a Christian. Listen to Paul writing to 1 Corinthians 6, 9. And Paul says, do not be deceived that the righteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. Do not be deceived. And in this day that we are living in, in this very month, he says, do not be deceived, nor the, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were, though, some of you, such were some of you, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of God. Spirit of our God. And so, examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. <clears throat> Consider your life and the words of others that surround you that may be rebuking you and correcting you for some of your behavior. Repent of it. Turn to Christ. And if you find that you have not embraced Christ savingly at all, you have not embraced the one true apostolic faith, the one faith that has been given to the church that we find in Holy Scripture. If you find that you are living in sin and rebellion to God, that you are the lawless when you practice lawlessness, as, as Paul or as Jesus says in Matthew 7, turn from your sin, repent of your sin, and turn to Christ by faith, and be saved before it's eternally too late. Paul reminds us in this opening chapter that there is life and forgiveness for sinners that have violated God's law. He says in 1 Corinthians, I mean 1 Timothy 1.15, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Let us pray.